Good evening. In a moment, we'll actually begin with a reading from the book of Joshua, Joshua the 24th chapter. Um, In my nervousness, that may be the only scripture reading that you're actually able to turn to before I read it, so definitely at least turn to that one. I'd like to start out, though, uh, before we do that, and just expressing my appreciation for your allowing me to stand in front of you for and be a part of this gospel meeting. I can say with certainty that being a part of it last year was one of the most spiritually encouraging and charging things that I've ever had the opportunity to be a part of. Everyone had very encouraging things to say. It was also uh, wonderful to be a part of it with with the brothers that uh, worked on this together. If you're unaware, this gospel meeting series, uh, none of the speakers are from afar, so to speak, or from different areas, but we're actually all from uh, within. And so, as you could deduct from that, uh, with one welcomed exception, none of us are full-time preachers. And the one exception to that would be uh, Josh will be bringing part two to this lesson series tomorrow, and so hopefully I don't ruin it for him tonight, so that you actually want to come back tomorrow night at 6 p.m. I'm especially glad to have my family come up from Tennessee, and I also have one of my co-workers here. And uh, any, anybody else that's visiting from the area or otherwise, we're, we're especially glad that you chose to be here on a Friday evening when I'm sure there were plenty of other things to be doing. Joshua, the 24th chapter, starting in verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve Him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is He who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt. And skipping down to verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for He is a holy God, He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm. It's perhaps an interesting verse, if read in isolation, verse 19, where Joshua says, you cannot serve the Lord. How many times have we heard a preacher stand up and deliver a sermon where he says, you can't serve the Lord. The Lord won't forgive your sins. But he explains the reasoning for saying that. In verse 20, he says, if you forsake the Lord and serve other gods, he will turn against you. Joshua here is calling out God's people. This is the nation of Israel that was brought out of Egypt with power. These are the very people that saw the wonders and the signs that were done before Pharaoh and the parting of the Red Sea. He was calling them out for claiming to be the people of the Lord, but also trying to serve false gods. Joshua told them, you can't be a follower of God, but also try to serve idols. The law of Moses had already been given. It was clear. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. So if the children of Israel really knew God, they should have known that like Joshua said in verse 19, God is a jealous God. The children of Israel, they said that they wanted to follow God, but their actions said otherwise. This idea of claiming to be a follower of God, but not living that out, 
not doing what he says, it's also very clear in the New Testament, and that brings us actually to our theme passage for this gospel meeting that we'll refer back to probably time and time again, whether directly or indirectly. It's found in Titus chapter 1 and the first part of verse 16. The first part of verse 16 in Titus chapter 1 says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. It is important that we consider the context here. We know that the book of Titus was written by the Apostle Paul to Titus. He's giving Titus the task of setting in order the church that was in Crete. In verses 10 through 16 of Titus chapter 1, Paul is explaining his reasoning for the urgent need of the appointment of elders in the church in Crete. In verses 10 through 11, Paul says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. In other words, there were in Crete those who professed to be followers of God, but they were living, as Paul said, insubordinate and disobedient lives. Paul says in the latter part of verse 16 that those who claimed to know God were abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work because of their behavior. Which I hope then is a good lead-in to our meeting title, The Christian Atheist. Our hope is that those two words together, Christian and atheist, create such a conflict in your mind that you say, that's not even possible. How could you put those two words together even in the same sentence? How dare you even title this gospel meeting series with anything about atheist in the title? And that would be our point exactly this evening. It's not possible to be a Christian and an atheist. In review, what... What is an atheist? Maybe we can draw from a medical term, aseptic. Septic refers to a microbial infection. Infection. Aseptic is basically without infection. It's sterile. A means without. Theism is the belief in God. We know that. So atheism must then be without a belief in God or a disbelief in God. An atheist doesn't live a life guided by the Word of God because they don't believe in God. Why would they go by God's word if they don't even believe in God? Thus, Christian atheist, that phrase, it must be then a play on words for describing someone who claims to be a Christian, but doesn't live a life guided by the word of God. Even our own thinking can be misguided if we claim to be followers of the Lord, but we aren't living lives guided by God's word. If that be the case... We're nothing more than a Christian atheist. We want to hone in this evening on the individual, especially those who are of the household of faith, who claim to believe in God, but they don't really know Him. As most of us probably realize, many in America and throughout the world actually believe in God. 2018 Gallup poll revealed that about 64% of Americans uh, are convinced with certainty that there is a God or that God exists. Yet, of those 64% of Americans believing in God, only 45% reported being members of a church. So here we already see a discrepancy in belief and behavior. 
Roughly 20% of believers in God in America make no effort to go with a congregation or church and regularly worship Him. To further illustrate this idea of belief versus knowing, uh, let me ask a question. Are there times in our day-to-day lives where we can believe in someone who we don't really know? Consider, if you will, my daily interactions as as a physical therapy with my patients. People who I've never met, they don't know my mom's name, the fact that I have twin sisters, uh, the fact that I've been married to Ashley for five years or that I like long walks on the beach. Um, If they even come back to me for one follow-up visit, they, to some degree, they believe in me as a physical therapist. But although they, they believe in me, that still doesn't really mean that they know me. And why don't they know me? Quite simply, it's because we haven't spent enough time together to get to know one another. Similarly, a person can have a general belief in God, but perhaps even a, even a strong conviction of a belief in God, but they still don't have a relationship with God. Believing in God does not necessarily equate to knowing God. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do Satan's demons have a relationship with God? Certainly not a relationship that we would like to have. So this evening I want to offer up four reasons why someone may believe in God but not know God. Point number one. Some people don't know God because they don't know His Son. And while it's clear that there are many who at least believe that God exists, there are some who don't really know Him because they don't know His Son. I had a conversation with a former neighbor. Um, I was initially very encouraged by his mentioning of God. It became pretty clear that he had actually a, a fairly strong conviction about the existence of God. I use that then as a springboard to invite him here the services uh, with us here at Lakeside. But upon that invitation, it became really clear really fast that he didn't really have any conviction about God's Son. He didn't really believe in the redemptive power of the blood of Jesus. He basically needed an explanation of how and why the universe came into existence, but anything beyond that to him was just extra. He just felt confident with believing in God. Have you ever been to a ball game and some renowned preacher or theologian is invited to give the prayer? But maybe because of political correctness, the prayer is offered with a quick amen at the end. Without any acknowledgement at the end of that prayer is being offered through Christ. Uh, more commonly like we would do here in, in Jesus' name or in Christ's name, amen. In my mind, this is a weak attempt to not offend anyone who thinks that they can know God but not know His Son. So what does the Bible say about this idea of knowing God without knowing His Son? John 14 uh, shed some light on this. <clears throat> John 14 and verse 6, and this is Jesus speaking here. And we could really start and end the point with this. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How then can we pray to God in any other way than through Christ? 
How then can we believe in God or say that we have a relationship with God in any other way than through Christ? Jesus tells us in his word that he is the way, he is the true, he is the life, and that nobody is coming to God. Nobody is having a relationship with God except for through him. We're unable to do that without knowing the Son. Turn over a few pages now to John 17. John 17 and verse 5. Again, Jesus speaking. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I've had with you before the world existed. Jesus was with God before the world ever came into existence. Jesus was not some afterthought. He was not a prophet sent among many other prophets only. Uh, You know most people's lives are chronicled or biographied after their deaths. Yet Jesus was the only person to ever have their life, their purpose, the events laid out in minute detail hundreds of years prior to their birth with over 300 Old Testament prophecies. Jesus was not an afterthought. In fact, it was God's plan for us as his people to have a relationship with him through his son, Jesus. Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God's plan before the beginning of time in his infinite wisdom was that his people would have a relationship with him through Christ. As the Ephesian passage reads, if we want to be found blameless before God, we will do so through Jesus the Christ. How about Acts, the fourth chapter in verse 12? It says that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And what name, of course, is that passage referring to or talking about? We know that it's Jesus. First John, the book of First John is a wealth of information relating to this topic, and we're going to refer back to it a few, a few more times if you want to keep your marker there. But First John, uh, in the second chapter, 1 John 2 and verse 2, it says, He, Christ, is the propitiation. Now this word propitiation, I always had a loose understanding of what it means. It means atonement. Basically the replacement for. He is the replacement for, the atonement, the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In simple terms, we obtain our salvation from death due to sin... Through Jesus the Son. We'll turn over now a few pages to John the fourth chapter. John chapter four and verse nine. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Ultimately, God showed us his love through his Son. So, how then could we claim to know God or have a relationship with him? without knowing the greatest gift that he's ever given. Let me try to make an illustration here so that we can try to wrap our finite minds around such an infinite concept. Um, Let's imagine that that Luke, hell, sitting right here, he, in just an unfathomable circumstance, were out and about, I'm with his family, and he allows one of his sons to die so that I can live. Again, a completely unfathomable circumstance, but let's imagine that it happened. 
Luke allowed one of his sons to die so that I could continue to live. Let's say then I'm out and about a year later, say in a restaurant, and an individual who knows both me and Luke, he comes up to me and says, in, in no other way that he knows how to say, says, you know, I know, you know Luke Hill, right? And imagine if I just kind of with a, a flippant smile on my face say, yeah, I know Luke, he's, uh, he works down there at Modern, he's a pretty cool guy. Can you imagine just the disbelief that that individual would have because of the unappreciation that I would have without acknowledging the fact that Luke actually allowed his son to die in my stead? When we claim to know God, but we forget, even as Christians, to constantly acknowledge the gift of his son, his glory, his majesty, his sacrifice, we're acting and behaving in the same ungrateful way as what I just described. We don't want to be guilty of saying that we follow Christ, but behaving in a way that reflects that we don't know Christ. While there are many who don't believe in Jesus the Son, there are in fact many people who do believe in Jesus. But perhaps they still don't know God because they keep on sinning. 1 John, we're back in 1 John, chapter 3 and verse 6 says, No one abides in him, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So according to this passage, if an individual chooses to keep on sinning, it's as if they've never even known God. Although that should make this point pretty easy, let's, let's dig in a little deeper. The reason that I want to make this point about keeping on sinning, um, it seems like there's a sort of push among, we'll call it contemporary Christianity, to essentially... Live and let live. In other words, we Christians have no obligation whatsoever to call sin, sin. Buzz phrases like, well, aren't we all sinners? It's God's job to judge, not ours. Aren't we just supposed to love each other? These are completely true and biblical statements when applied correctly. But unfortunately, many misuse these biblical concepts that I just mentioned in an attempt to be politically correct and perhaps in the search for popularity. Second Peter 2.16 says that the ignorant and the unstable twist the Scripture to their own destruction. We, anyone, can take Scripture and biblical concepts and twist it to fit what we want it to mean. We should, with certainty, approach all people with the love of Christ. That is without question. Mark 2, verse 17, even says, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came, to, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We also know that Jesus was even found eating with the most detestable individuals in society. Yet, let's contrast that with what we read about in 1 Corinthians 5, and it's a story that we're all uh, familiar with. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. I'm going to give people, I'm going to pause and give people time to get there, and I'm I'm pushing it. 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. According to the Apostle Paul, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Are you arrogant? Ought you not to rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed 
from among you. So if we're supposed to, as some, some claim, if we're supposed to have an indefinite tolerance for sinful, sinful lifestyles, why would Paul have told the Christians in Corinth to remove that individual from among them? Again, we as Christians should love everyone, just like God loves everyone. But love does not equal the approval for sin. We have to make the distinction. John, book of John 14 and verse 15, Jesus simply states, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we claim to have, if we claim to love the Lord and be a follower of His, we're going to be willing to follow what He says and keep His commandments. Moreover, if we love someone else, we should be willing to show them that if so, they're living in a way that does not harmonize with God's Word. I think James 5 and verse 20 gives some good light on this. James 5 verse 20 says, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So, if we don't want another soul to die, we should be willing to tell them in a loving way that we are concerned for their soul and that they're not living right. So, can we know God but continue living in sin. Back in 1 John, now in chapter 2, verse 3 through 5 says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Are we as Christians making every effort possible to rid our own lives of sin? Or are we lazily remaining in sin and assuming just that God's grace is going to cover us? It really comes down in my mind to one word, and that is repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is an intentional change or a turning away from sin and turning to God. It's going from wanting to sin to not wanting to sin. Acts 3 and verse 19 says, Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Before we become a Christian, we're, we're essentially standing face to face with sin. We're embracing it. But when we become a Christian, we have to repent. And as Acts 3 and verse 19 says, when we repent, we have to turn from the sin. We have to put it from behind us and be walking toward God. Romans 6, verses 1 and 2 has a similar thing. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? When we become a Christian, we're supposed to die to sin. We're talking about Tonight, whether or not we as Christians have a true relationship or a right relationship with God, just like Joshua told the children of Israel in our opening passage, you can't have a relationship with God and with false gods of the land. Similarly, we can't have a relationship with sin and with God. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Consider as well Hebrews 
chapter 10 and verse 26. The Hebrew writer says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. God has once and for all provided us with the ultimate sacrifice so that we can have the forgiveness of our sins. But if we deliberately, as the passage in Hebrews 10 says, go on sinning, there's nothing else to be done for us. Again, let's look back at the passage we began this point with, 1 John 3 and 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Saying that one can serve sin and serve God is like saying our phrase, Christian atheist. And speaking about relationships, perhaps there are some people who don't know God because they don't act like His children. What relationship in this world is easier to understand than a parent's relationship with their child? Uh, Josh recently mentioned in a sermon, he, he br- briefly mentioned uh, his experience, their experience with potty training and what an unpleasant and difficult experience that was. Uh, but is it very difficult to teach a child their relationship with their father? Of many things that might be difficult about parenting, is it hard to help even a baby understand the relationship with their parents? Look at little Emery. She already has saying Dada nailed at nine months old. If you take her away from Brandon and Missy, almost within seconds, on average, uh, she's looking for them. And why is that? Because she knows that they are her parents. She might not be able to describe that to you, but she knows they're protectors, her providers. They are her people. It's the easiest relationship for us as human beings to learn and to understand on this earth. When I call up my mom and dad, even at 33 years old, I've been out of their house for years, it doesn't take a long introduction when I call them up. I don't have to say, uh, hey, uh, Kim, this is uh, Josh Harris. I am your firstborn son. I was calling about. Usually it's something about like, hey, what are you doing? You know, that's enough. Because why? They are my parents. They know me. I know them. They love me. I love them. We don't need a long introduction. So it's interesting then that many want to claim that they believe in God, but they don't even think of God as their father. People think of God in many different ways. How often do we hear God referred to in irreverent ways like the big man upstairs? Some apparently view God as this giant man in the attic of earth that's looking for a reason to use his bigness to punish mankind for wrongdoing. Maybe others think of God irreverently as something like a genie who is <clears throat> who grants wishes upon our wishes upon our command. What does the Bible say about our relationship with him? I'm going to give you several rapid fire passages here that pertain to our relationship with God. The first one being Galatians 3 verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Is a good parent ever just sitting around looking for a reason to punish their child? Of course, the answer is no. Neither is God. God loves us like a father loves his children. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 18, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Romans 8 and verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. 
about John 1 and verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And one more in Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So while this talk of God's people being described as God's children, again, I'm suggesting that it's because it's the closest relationship that our finite human minds can come to the understanding, come to understanding the relationship that God wants us to have with Him. So what makes, what makes our physical family relationships the best? Well, it doesn't take, you know, a, a psychology degree or a sociology degree to understand our family relationships are the best when our communication is good. Our family relationships are at their best when our quality time is plentiful. Parents, can you imagine your child not talking to you for days or even weeks at a time? Or maybe he or she talks to you, but it's to only ask for money or food or ride to the ball game or ball practice. Uh, as a parent, you might feel like you're getting the short end of the relationship stick. Anyone observing that relationship would say at a minimum... That's kind of a strained relationship. So how is it that anyone could say that they know God our Father if they do not pray to Him and talk to Him regularly? 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says that we're to pray without ceasing. Philippians 4.6-7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Just like a child is eager to speak to their dad when he gets home from work, we should also be eager to speak to our Father who is in heaven with any opportunity that we get. Moreover, how could we say that we have a relationship with God our Father if we do not allow Him to speak to us on a regular basis through the reading of His Word? Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4, Jesus said, But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Not only should we regularly read God's word, but we should live by it. Just like a young boy might proudly say at school, Well, my dad said, We Christians should be proud to quote from the words of our Heavenly Father. 1 John Chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. And as part of being God's children, we're thus brothers and sisters in Christ, which leads us to the fourth point. Some people don't really know God because they don't know His church. What, what is the church exactly? Often I receive the question, seems like it happens quite a bit at work and, and otherwise, uh, someone with very good intentions, they'll say, where do you go to church? And again, that's always been a well-intentioned uh, question, so I mean absolutely no disrespect to any who, who asked that question. I myself have asked that question a number of times, but do we go to church? Colossians 1 and verse 27 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, 
And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church. So again, I'll ask, what, what is the church exactly? The, the church is the body of Christ. Compare this now to Romans, the 12th chapter, in verse 4 through 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Key in on the fact that we're talking about many different members make up the body of Christ, we don't all exactly have the same function similar to our actual physical bodies. Um, when you consider our physical bodies, all of our organs have different functions, right? Our heart, it pumps the blood to deliver blood and oxygen to our tissues. Our lungs, it actually puts oxygen in our blood. Our kidneys, it filters our blood. All those are vastly different functions, but what, what's the end goal? All those organs are functioning and working together for the good of our body. In a similar fashion, we are all as individual members of the body of Christ supposed to be working together for the sake of Christ. How is it then that some feel like they can believe in God, but they can somehow operate as a sort of lone wolf or in isolation as a Christian? It's very difficult for that to be the case. Not working together with other Christians in a local church would be like taking a heart out of someone's body, laying it on an operating table, and then expecting it to get up and go buy groceries. We know that that can't happen, it cannot work, it cannot function by itself, and neither can we as isolated Christians somehow work together for the sake of Christ. We can't know God if we don't know His church. In Acts, the 20th chapter, verse 28, Paul gives admonition here to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Hone in on that phrase, obtained with his own blood. How, how could we take for granted God's church whenever it was purchased with the blood of our Lord and Savior? How could we not want to be part of that group of people? How could we take for granted God's church whenever it was purchased with the blood? How could we forsake the meeting together with the body of believers? Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25 is a passage many of us are likely very familiar with. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How do we as Christians, according to this passage, how do we as fellow Christians provoke one another to good works? as it says, by not neglecting to meet together. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20 says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Who's speaking there? You know, Jesus. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among them. When we meet together as Christians, we are able to assemble together with Christ among us. Is there then a better way to get to know God than to have Jesus in our midst, 
by assembling together. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus told Peter that based on his confession that Jesus was the Son of God, that he would build his church. And on the solid, found, on the solid foundation of that confession, in order to know God, we need to be a part of the church that Jesus built. There are many who claim to be church members, but the church that they are members of does not follow the teachings of Jesus, the founder of the one true church, the one that he built. In other words, think of your Bible like a key. Think of your, think of your church is like the keyhole. We know that a key and a keyhole, they have to line up. They have to be in harmony with one another in, in order for them to work together. We, we all need to ask ourselves, are the church that we're a member of, does it line up with the pages of the New Testament? To start with, we want to have a name that's, that's found in Scripture. Romans 16, verse 16 says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Notice churches is in lowercase. It's not a proper name, but a description of the overall group of believers who are of Christ. And that is then an acceptable name for us to go by as a group of Christians, the churches of Christ. Second, we want our actions and our conduct conduct to line up with Scripture as a church. As a group, we want to line up with Scripture. Colossians 3 and verse 17 says, And whatever you do... In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. John 4.25, passage that we're all familiar with because we see it each time we assemble. God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. We as a church must offer God worship that is according to His word and that is in truth. So we should ask ourselves... Are we a member of the church that Jesus built? Are we a member of the church that Jesus purchased with his own blood? And that begs the question, how, how do we become a part of the church that Jesus built? We've established if we want to know God, if we want to have a relationship with God, we must be a part of that church. Consider Acts uh, the second chapter in verse 47, it sheds some light on how exactly do we become a part of the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So how, how are we added to the church? We're added to the body of Christ at the point of being saved. Tomorrow, Josh McKibben is going to talk to us about when you believe in God but aren't sure about your salvation. I don't want to steal any of his thunder, but tonight, as an invitation to the Lord, I'm simply going to say that it's the blood of Christ that saves us from our sins, and we access that that blood through a specific way or, or ways. Uh, for one, we have to hear the Word of God. We can read about that in Romans 10:17. We must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, 
We can read about that in Acts 16 and verse 31. We have to repent of our sins, just like we talked about. We, If we want to become a Christian, we want to become a child of God, we want to be put in His church, we have to be willing to turn from our sins. We have to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. We read about that in Romans 10, 9 through 10. Mark 16, 16 tells us that whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. To parallel that, Romans 6 in verse 3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Were baptized into Christ. I would safely assume that everyone here has heard the Word of God. I would also assume that if you're here, you believe the Word of God. But have you repented of your sins? Have you confessed that Jesus is the Son of God? Have you been baptized into Christ? So hopefully, we'll all ask ourselves this evening, do I know God? Do I, I'm sorry, do I know about God or do I know God? Do I know God because I know His Son? Do I know God because I've turned my back on sin? Do I know God because I consider myself one of His children? And finally, do I know God because I'm a member of His church? If not, that unfortunately must mean that we're just content with being a Christian atheist. But I know that no one here this evening wants that to be the case. I know that we all want to be in a right relationship with God. If you have not put on Christ in baptism, there is no better time to do that than this evening. We have water prepared We are ready and willing to assist you with that. If you have found yourself falling back into sin, no longer living a life of repentance, you need to repent of that. We would love to be able to pray for you uh, for your forgiveness this evening. If you have any need at all, please come forward to the front row as we stand and sing.